0: A lot of brands were built on Kickstarter, but they're built product first. I think the biggest brands you'll know in a decade will be built on Web3 first, and they'll be built by community first. That community will bring products to light.
1: Welcome to Learn With Shopify. I'm Adam Levinter. If you want to grow your business online, you've got to win on social media. That's exactly what Brayden and Tyler Hanley have done with their company, Inkbox which sells temporary tattoos that last one to two weeks. First on Instagram, now TikTok, and also Web3, the company's success on those platforms have helped to fuel a multi-million dollar acquisition with the manufacturing giant BIC, probably best known for its lighters and ink pens. Braden is here with us today to share tips for winning on social media and marketing. Braden, welcome to Learn With Shopify.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So your company's success, it's a remarkable story, something a lot of entrepreneurs and founders dream of. But you know, it was a short time ago that you guys got started on Kickstarter. So you have this goal of raising twenty thousand. Yes. You go out on Kickstarter, you raise two hundred and seventy-five thousand. Yes. So that's huge validation, right? What what comes with that? I mean, you probably had expectations of reaching your milestone, but all of a sudden there's this new pressure that comes with that that raise of two hundred seventy-five.
0: Yeah, I think we went into it expecting to beat the twenty thousand. I, I mean, there was part of it that was strategy that you know if you you know, you're 200% over what you went out and funded. That looks good, right? Um, so we expected to do 40,000 maybe. Um, but it really took off when we got on um, BuzzFeed. We got picked up on BuzzFeed, and we had 100,000 people on our site at one, on one day. And we were just like, this is crazy. Um, and I think we did you know, 50,000 plus in that day on our site alone, hmm. um, too, because we were, we were selling on our site. Um, our old product and the Kickstarter was for our new product. Um, And we had the, I think the, it was kind of a validation, but it was kind of like a, Oh no, like we have to fulfill these orders and it's just me. Um, Those are the nights where I don't encourage this, but those are the nights that you have to, you know, stay at the office all night, sleep there because it's so important to have your early adopters have a good experience. So I needed to get those orders out ASAP. I, I, didn't want them to wait, you know, a week or two. I think that kills your business. So I, I stayed up and made sure those orders were out. And then in the next day or two, and our process at that time was just horrible—the most inefficient process you could ever imagine. Um, but those are the ways you have to start, right? Inefficient, embarrassed by it, um, but get it done. Mm-hmm.
1: And you and Tyler are first-time founders. You come yes. to this with basically no entrepreneurial experience, no supply chain experience. How did no. you figure all this out?
0: Um, I guess, like growing up, I, I did a lot of things. Um, when I was 12, I was selling on an eBay store. I did, you know, 100 plus sales a, a year, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you're 12 years old selling on eBay, it's quite a bit, right? I used to buy things from China, like fake Lacoste shirts um, in, in bulk and resell them to my friends when I was in, in high school, uh, make a couple dollars here and there. So I was always importing things and selling things, and you know I set up a Shopify site when I was 20. Um, I was always doing entrepreneurial things. Uh, I went to school for entrepreneurship at Ryerson, Mm. so I always felt like it was just natural, and I always paid attention to to that stuff. But um, yeah, no formal experience, but I don't think you need formal experience to be successful.
1: Talk to me about creating and owning this category, because at the time... There's a couple things going on. There was the Hannah tattoos, which aren't obviously what Inkbox is about. There were the real tattoos, but there's this sort of messy middle of kind of nothing. And when people think about a tattoo brand, like what comes to mind to me, like n- there was no tattoo brand. That's, but- what we, that's what we
0: ask people too, is like when you think of a tattoo brand, what do you think of? And there's never an answer to that. Um, and that's what we want to be. We want to be the tattoo brand that people think about when they think about um, getting tattoos, um, whether that's testing them out or having them for fun or, or getting them for real, you're thinking of ink blocks. Um, so the way it started was, um, it was actually Tyler's idea, my brother, um, and he, he just wanted tattoos and didn't know how to test it and have it feel real and, and kind of experience a tattoo, right? Um, so we found this fruit from Panama um, that they were importing since 2012, the henna artists were. Um, And we imported it from this charity. We went down and stayed with the tribes in Panama um, for a week. So we were like deep in the Darien Gap, um, staying with the tribes, meeting them, understanding what their needs were too, how we can support them, how, you know, if we're buying the fruit. Um, We were uh, instrumental in helping them buy their first refrigeration system, which was a cool milestone when you're just starting out. Um, Yeah, start importing that fruit, testing it, and then eventually launched with just basically like the fruit in a bottle mixed with xanthan gum, citric acid, um, with a stencil that we purchased in a big PVC roll um, from China on Shopify. Yeah, and I Mm. built the website myself, did all customer service
1: myself, import, export, everything, yeah. Did you have an inclination that there would be a market for this, people wanting to express themselves without... Regret or experiment with tattoos before committing. What it was, was more on? of
0: the experimental part. It's like I wanted to see what it feels like mm. um, to have a tattoo. We didn't really think about how big the market could be. You know, we didn't do a formal business plan. We didn't even do a small business plan. It was just a, hey, we want this. We think other people will want this. And I remember even putting on the first ink box. Um, tattoo I ever done. I've walked out and it was summer in Toronto. And, you know, you're already happy in summer in Toronto, but you felt a bit different with the Mm -hmm. tattoo. I never really understood that, but you feel a bit different. And I think looking back now, you feel a bit more like yourself because you're expressing
1: yourself a bit more. Yeah, that's interesting. So you guys launch, you have this successful Kickstarter campaign, and then you go on Dragon's Den at some point. Yeah. So tell me about that experience, and what was that like?
0: Yeah, I didn't have any media training or formal experience on camera. That was my first on-camera experience, and I was extremely nervous. I was 24, 25, um, and I remember before, just like we did here, before you go out, you have to test the mic. Hmm. Um, and they asked my brother to you know, say a couple sentences test the mic, make sure the sound's fine. He's like, hi, my name is Tyler. I'm from Inkbox. You know, we're here pitching our company, blah, blah, blah. They ask, they look at me, they ask me, and I freeze up. I could <laughs> not say a word. If anyone has anxiety, it just like spirals out of control because mm-hmm. now your anxiety is like, okay, I I, I can't talk here. How am I going to talk on stage? your mind's racing, you start sweating, now you're sweating, you have makeup on. It's not, just not a good scenario, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, when I got out there, we actually met with Michelle Romano um, before going mm-hmm. on um, Dragon's Den. And she gave us a few words before we started and just said hi and stuff like that. And that really helped calm, calm us down. Mm-hmm. Calm so me down.
1: What happens? Did you, did you get a deal done?
0: We got a deal done on the show. Um, and Michelle actually invested um, after the show um, but yeah, the, the actual deal
1: on the show was not the real thing that went through. And following that, you guys do uh, a seed round or a Series A at some point. You raise a bunch of capital. I'm yeah. I'll seed. get to that in a moment. Yeah. Okay, so we'll talk about the seed in just a sec. But I want to go back to the early days of of Inkbox. How were you funding this business? Did you did you and Tyler decide okay, we're going to commit X number of dollars to no. launching this, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, too bad. No, we
0: don't. We we didn't have money. We don't come from money and and we didn't. We started it because I had a friend um, that I knew since I was three years old. And I told him the idea before we even started. And he said, I have $10,000. I'd love to invest it in you and I'll take 10% of the company. And at that time, I was like, sure. Like, that's wicked. Like, this company's worth nothing. You can have 10% of nothing for $10,000. Well, Um, little did we know that that ten thousand dollars would turn into more than a million um, later down the line but that's how investor yeah yeah exactly probably one of the best investments of all time but other than early bitcoin and crypto people but um yeah that's how we started it so we had ten thousand dollars that lasted us probably you know six to eight months before the kickstarter um and we weren't paying ourselves Um, i was just living off of nothing (laughs) somehow
1: i remember Um, um Tyler mentioned that half of that, I think, went to a chemist. Yes, right? yeah, it did. Um,
0: to research ha- what exactly was happening um, when you put that fruit on your skin, it was, you know, sinking into your skin, reacting, um, reacting with it, and turning your epidermis um, a different color. Um, we, you know, no one really researched that until we started to, um, and we found out that it was just one ingredient within that fruit that was doing that. Um, and that's what we have our patents
1: on. So you're responsible for marketing in the business, also BizDev. dev. Uh, I was responsible for marketing,
0: not anymore. But I have been responsible for many different functions. Okay. The business.
1: Well, let's let's dive into marketing a little bit. Sure. There's a lot of folks listening that will want to know how you guys grew your Instagram following from zero to north of a million very quickly, and 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 at one point, one point five million followers on yep. Instagram. Huge. I mean, it's incredible. What was working on Instagram? What wasn't? How were you experimenting early on? I think the advice
0: and our experience is so much different than what you'd get now um, that it's not really relevant anymore. Like what mm-hmm. I would say here, you know, seven, almost eight years ago, and when we started on Instagram, a lot easier to grow your follow- following and a lot more important of a channel back then. Now, not as important of a channel. Um, you know, I think how we grew it is we didn't really think about what we were posting and we weren't overly curating it. We were posting tattoos that looked horrible from our consumers because we were showing our authentic self. And and I think that word is kind of overused, authentic. Um, But I think seven, eight years ago, it wasn't right. So we were early on that trend, but I think it wasn't intentional. It was more because we didn't know better. And sometimes knowledge will hurt you. Um, in in building a business, because you might do something different if you don't have the context.
1: Did you figure out though that certain influencers, certain partnerships were working, and, and sort of like deploying capital there at some point to figure out, okay, here's an influencer that's driving x number of traffic. I know I can get ROI off of that influencer. Not
0: early on. I think it was more of like a you know quantity over quality, mm. um, getting it out to a lot of people to to post and. and just inherently cool to have tattoos so people would post about it and it's an interesting product too right Um, it's a new market a new product that people haven't tried so they were posting about it and and giving their experience of what it was like to um, have an ink box tattoo so in terms of budget we didn't really have a budget in the early days now obviously there's significant budget towards influencers and partnerships and the partnerships that have worked best have been, you know, along the music lines or poetry It works really well. Hmm. Um, I think people connect with poetry um, and wearing those words on yourself is very powerful.
1: That's so interesting. Um, You mentioned that Instagram was important back then, maybe not so much now. I would think or assume that TikTok is the next channel that you're focused on. You've got 5 million likes on, on those videos. Tell me about your experimentation with TikTok and what you would recommend others do who are considering TikTok as an acquisition channel.
0: I think, I mean, you hit it right on, on the head there. It's an acquisition channel first and foremost. I think Instagram is more about your brand now and it's a, like a, a lookbook for your brand. TikTok is where you can actually acquire consumers, especially if they're in that demographic of you know, 18 to 24 year olds. We are the twelfth biggest beauty brand on TikTok, um, which is crazy when you think of how many beauty brands um, there are. And, and our philosophy on it has always been: jump on the trends early. Um, we have hired people internally to actually create content. I think that's important. We've done that from the beginning. Is you know when we were just starting out, we had someone that was head a video that would just create advertisements for us Hmm. and it came down to just having enough content and content is so important as we know but it's difficult and expensive to create content especially good content but if you hire good people that have an eye for it then it's a lot easier
1: let's dive deeper on the creating content piece so you know content was probably a piece you had stuff going on uh, with instagram that was working well what else do you think was contributing to that early traffic?
0: I think we had really good performance marketers on our team mm. that knew how to drive a lot of people to the site um, at very low costs. And again, it goes back to, it's eye-catching, right? It's a, it is a, um, it's a product that's visual, right? So naturally, it's very easy to get people to think, oh, what is this um, on digital um, platforms? But
1: now, a lot harder lot more expensive. Let's let's go back to the thing you mentioned uh, about being the 12th biggest beauty brand on TikTok. So uh, a lot has been made about building community. And I think a lot of folks are thinking about ways to build a deeper community or attached community to their brand. How have you guys done this?
0: Yeah, I think we internally think we've struggled with that a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, externally, it might not look like that, but we never felt like we really crushed it on the community part. We have a strong community, but it's not as strong as you know some other companies. Um, I think TikTok is an interesting platform for community. I don't think it's built for that necessarily.
1: Um, I think Web3 is built for that mm. more so. Okay, you're, you're teaming up here. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll jump over to Web3 for just a moment yeah. and we'll come back to uh, some of the other stuff. So summary of, in your words, Web1 versus web two. Versus Web three,
0: Web one and Web two are what you've known. Web three is what you're going to own.
1: Okay, um, how would you link Web three with that idea of building community?
0: I look at it like when I mean, we talked about Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. A lot of brands were built on Kickstarter, but they're built product first. I think the biggest brands you'll know in a decade will be built on Web three and NFTs first, and they'll be built by community first.
1: And they'll, those, that community will bring
0: products to light.
1: Very interesting. So um, if folks are thinking about experimenting with NFTs right now in, in terms of building a brand, could you create NFTs and attach that to your brand building in for some sure. way? Well, yeah.
0: I mean, why not? I think that's what, that's the way I see it. I mean, there's a lot of use cases for NFTs. Mm-hmm. But the way I see it is the brands that are, are going to come out of it. I mean, I don't think, Board 8 Yacht Club is going to go anywhere. It's just not going to go anywhere. It's going to become a, a bigger brand and more recognized, and our parents will eventually know that brand. Or they'll know brands that come out of Web3 and NFTs, like Azuki, for instance. I think that's a super solid brand first. I think there's only going to be a few of those. Um, it's going to be difficult to build. I mean, 99.9% of NFT projects are speculation and and not going to amount to anything. But so we're 99.9% of Kickstarter projects, mm-hmm. right? So I think NFTs and the Web3 space has some negative connotation right now, a little bit, because of how much how easy it is to do. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be important in the future and now.
1: Uh, I want to jump over and talk about culture, company culture, sure. to be specific. Um, you have some very interesting core values in the business. Uh, you list them on your website. Two are, two sort of jumped out to me. One, treating customers as BFFs, and two, sincerity without bullshit. Sincerity Sincerity without bullshit. Right. Um, So how do you guys live these core values?
0: When you have a bad customer experience, customer service experience, it really leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Especially when you have a product that's new, so you have to teach the consumer how, how to do it. Um, so treating them like it's your friend, and you know your friend messed it up. Mm. How would you react to that? I'd be like, "Oh, it's okay. Like, we'll get you another one. That's fine." Like, you know, have, being just a, a real person to them, and, and not so robotic, and um, actually having every email, especially in the beginning, being customized and not just a templated response. Um, we didn't do templated responses. I don't even think I knew how to do templated responses. In the very beginning, there's definitely no. I definitely did not, Um, and we were just using like Gmail. Um, So that that's um, where that comes from. Um, And sincerity without bullshit is just uh, being a good person and not um, coming with you know numbers to a meeting that are manipulated just to make yourself look good. It's coming with the real numbers, and if they're if they're bad, that's okay. Like just tell us. Tell us what's up, and you know we'll fix it together. Mm. It, it, you, know, you see that a lot in company cultures; is
1: it's just all a facade. Do you feel like when you went out to raise a Series A that you were somehow manipulating the numbers or manipulating the story? Sure, it's
0: all marketing in mm. the end, right? You're marketing yourself every day. You're marketing your company every, every day, so you do have to think about that. But I think there's a line mm-hmm. um, in that, and I think we struggled with raising money because we didn't push past that line a lot of time and we weren't overconfident. We weren't confident people Um, and we've only developed confidence as we grew. Um, so it was hard to raise money because we weren't this flashy showy people that would be like, look at us and look how big we could be a billion dollar company one day. We weren't really like that. So we needed to, um, attract, we eventually attracted, investors that were also not like that. They were more of like, show us the real numbers, give us sincerity without the bullshit.
1: The culture and uniqueness piece, I want to come back to this because we were talking earlier and you were saying how people you hired helped to build the company culture. And in fact, the profile of the early employees at Inkbox was, was quite unique.
0: Yeah, we didn't really think about culture when we first started the company. And I don't think you necessarily need to like have formal Um, company culture taglines and things on the wall when you first start the company. I think it's just about who you bring in and you can form the culture together. The people we brought in were just like who our consumers are now and who we attracted. It was the people that were a little bit maybe defined as misfits. And I don't use that word negatively. Um, I think that's uh, beneficial to be unique. And what was unique seven, eight years ago was just defined as progressive or like ultra-progressive, right? Those are the people we brought in because we realized that we're two white males starting a company. We need to surround ourselves with people that have different experiences than us um, to really understand everyone, right? Our perspective is not the only perspective.
1: You know, I'm curious, you know, as you build this team and and you and Tyler... You you're both scrappy entrepreneurs, you're first time founders. How do you start to figure out and ensure that the right people are in the right seats?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I did HR until probably four years into the company. Like I was the HR. But my background was only in inkbox and and, uh-huh. and being the HR person. Right. Got it. But I was I didn't have any actual training in it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But we lacked in process mm. right and formality. Um, But what we made up for was just, again, being real and understanding that um, everyone has unique situations. And, you know, if someone had a death in the family, you don't say come back to work tomorrow. You're saying take as much time as you need. Like I think that builds your culture too, right? It's the decisions you make early on that build your culture. Um, And part of that is nature. I don't recommend doing your own HR, um, but I think – Developing your EQ early, before you start a company, is probably the most important thing.
1: We talked earlier about marketing and finding product channel fit on Instagram or on TikTok. One of the other things that you guys did well, perhaps accidentally, was getting press coverage. There was a ton of early press coverage on Inkbox, and perhaps it was because you guys were so unique as a brand. But do you recommend that companies in their early stages figure out a way to get press?
0: It's a very expensive road if you... Put if you put dollars behind it, right? We didn't put dollars behind it. Um, the way we approached it was more of you know, yeah, we got picked up because it was unique. Um, but we also did a lot of partnerships, a lot of collabs um, that got picked up because we piggybacked on other people's or other companies'
1: natural PR. You mentioned that your brother Tyler uh, tends to be more comfortable <laughs> doing these kinds of interviews yes, and, yes. and getting in front of the camera. Yeah. So you you know where his strengths are, he probably knows where your strengths are, you guys are brothers, you're now business partners, Uh, you've scaled the business nicely. What do you think makes a a good partnership work and were there some challenges along the way? I think that's the main part you just talked
0: about is like you know each other's strengths and weaknesses and you know when to step out, step away and, and let them handle it, when not to overstep. That's the main thing is like finding a partner that has different capabilities, um, different strengths, and knowing where the lines are. I don't, I think we just trust each other. Um, you know, he's way more intelligent than me, way way more way more camera ready, um, and better in interviews and, and better in speaking in general. Um, so I let him handle most of that. I still try to want to develop it a bit more for myself, but. I don't think that's ever going to be my forte.
1: Well, for what it's worth, you're doing great job yeah, so exactly. far. Yeah. Um, you guys scale the business. You ultimately sell to BIC Yes. for 65 mil. Yes, U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Sounds cooler in Canadians, though. Congratulations. <laughs> it, it's such a cool story. What does it mean to you guys? Um, it's just validation, I think.
0: Uh, when we were first starting out the company... I'm, almost everyone laughed at it. I think it was, I mean, all my friends even will admit today that they thought I was crazy, and this was such a stupid idea. But it's that old, like, don't listen, old like saying, like, you know, trust yourself, listen to your instincts. And um, so I think seven years of stress and bearing things to try to not go crazy, um, you, you get rewarded for it. In some monetary sense, I think the most important part of the deal is that we made a lot of our friends' money, which is nice.
1: Do you feel any different now being on the other side of that acquisition and you're you're staying on board? We we talked about that for another few years. Do you feel different?
0: I feel a little bit less stressed um, because I don't think there's this whole like, oh my God, we're going to run out of money and not be able to pay people and everyone loses their job stress. Hmm. It's a tough stress to to deal with on a daily basis right? and trying to grow at insane paces every year because you need to attract new investors and you're always worrying about where the next raise is going to come from. Um, So you don't have that as much now, which is nice. Um, Now it's more of like almost like a healing from seven years of
1: burying things. That's very interesting and I think a lot of people can somehow relate to that feeling and it must be stressful, I would think, even when you are raising capital, you did raise a seed and ultimately a Series A. You did have credible investors on board. But as you talk about this, I can't help but feel like there was still an element of stress on an ongoing basis.
0: There's stress every day because it's not just the money thing, right? It's like, do your employees like to work for you? And like, There's so many little things too that you have to worry about like COVID happening and what's going to happen to the business now that Mm. there's this pandemic and do we have to shut down and the police showed up at our manufacturing space because they had to analyze if we had to shut down or not but we're manufacturing so we never had to but also didn't feel right because like we're just making temporary tattoos and Mm. it's not really important for the world Um, that's why we made face shields and Um, hand sanitizer and donated hundreds of thousands of those units um, to hospitals and communities um, during that, because we honestly felt like we shouldn't
1: be allowed to stay open. Oh, but hold on a sec, because um, you guys were doing important things for the world. I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, individuals being able to express themselves through tattoos is an important thing you know, four years ago when I was talking to Tyler about the business, he was mentioning that people would tattoo, you know, the word breathe on their arm who were struggling with depression or anxiety. And that sort of got them through a tough period. You were doing collaborations on the charity side of things. You did a big collab with Sick Kids uh, and donated a lot of money to that hospital. And those kids were, were part of, you know, creating tattoos of their own. So, I think indirectly, perhaps, or perhaps not, not so obvious to some, you were an important company for a lot of people.
0: Sure, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it's hard to talk about the sick kids stuff because that's very close to us. But
1: mm-hmm. no, it's great. Um, so COVID hits, and it seems as though this is a relatively pandemic-proof
0: business. We didn't right. think so. Uh huh. Um, We let go of some people at the start of it because we were like, we have no idea what's going to happen. Are people going to use it? Our primary use case, what we thought our primary use case was, was people traveling and wanting to be a bit different when they travel. Well, it turns out the main use case is just like having fun. Um, And you can have fun at home. And when you're stuck in your house, you know, it's interesting to at least try a new product and have a little bit of
1: fun in such a dark time. Fun, fun during dark times. Yeah, uh, that
0: should be our new slogan. That is fun
1: uh, during dark times because every day is a dark time now. Apparently, great, in our world, it's a very good slogan. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back to the marketing stuff and double click on the customer acquisition channel channel piece. So if a company were to have a marketing budget of say a hundred dollars uh, to use round numbers and they wanted to experiment with you know how are we going to deploy this hundred dollars across Facebook, Google, Pinterest, TikTok. How should they be thinking about that equation now?
0: I mean, obviously it depends on the business. If we're talking about strictly D to C mm-hmm. businesses, I would put, you know, 80% of that on TikTok. Um, because I think that's where the efficiencies are right now. Even though you probably won't see it on the dashboard because their dashboard isn't as sophisticated as it could be. You'll probably see that in your numbers, um, in your overall sales that that is where you're seeing the most uh, efficient spend right now. I think Meta and Zuckerberg have really gotten um, a little bit greedy on their platforms and have skyrocketed the costs. And obviously, the iOS updates and stuff haven't helped um, with tracking. So it's difficult to do performance marketing right now to build your company strictly on that. That's what I think Web3 and community building is so much more important than ever.
1: I think that's important, uh, and that will resonate with a lot of people, that that iOS update piece. When that happened, a lot of the retargeting initiatives sort of went out the window, and that obviously has a huge impact on a company's customer acquisition cost.
0: Yeah, you have to focus on retention and other areas, right? You have to adapt. I think that's probably the most important thing entrepreneurs can do is just adapt in the time. Um, and that's going to happen again, where TikTok now is, you know, in a year, however long it may be, is not efficient, then you're going to have to adapt again, you have to have, have a lot of, you know, irons in the fire and, and ready to initiate
1: what what's next. You had mentioned the word retention. Did you find yourselves doing certain things tactically to nurture the relationship beyond that first purchase? And were you tracking repeat purchases of ink box tattoos over time?
0: Yep. Um, a lot of it would be through what we called ink drops. So we would do a lot of new tattoos. Um, we started off with like 100 tattoos in the beginning. We have over 10,000 tattoos now on, on the on the platform. Um, so we would do weekly tattoo drops that would encourage people to, you know, just scroll through and and look at new tattoos and and if something stood out for them it's a very personal decision what you put on your body Um, so what resonates with one person might be completely different than another and that's um, always been tough for us right you need a lot of designs um, um, to be able to attract a lot of customers but yeah we did ink drops and collabs um, would bring a lot of people back Um, sms really helped with retention as well
1: And InkFan, the loyalty program?
0: InkFan, yeah, the the loyalty program was never crazy successful for us. I think that's probably an area that we could have done better. Um, But I also think unless your product is like really built for a loyalty program, like a Starbucks, I don't think you even need to do it. Hmm. I think you can build community different ways. Um, I don't think a, a loyalty program even for me, it kind of feels like I'll have like one or two loyalty programs max. Like I'm not, no offense to Inkbox here, but I'm not signing up for a loyalty program for temporary tattoos, you know.
1: So after the iOS 14 update, you probably start to experiment with other channels, including email. So was email working for you guys, and what tools were you using?
0: Yeah, email's always been big. Um, I think in the beginning, early on, we are using MailChimp, and then as we grew, we used Klaviyo. And then after that was Salesforce, but Salesforce I wouldn't recommend unless you're at massive scale because the resources that you need to make Salesforce effective are a lot. Um, so I'd recommend using something like Klaviyo, and just um, the tools that they've built are, are phenomenal.
1: So let's talk about next chapter for the two of you. You and Tyler are also investing and advising a lot of uh, D2C brands. Tell me a little bit about what you're looking for when you're investing. I, I mean, I think Ty does a bit
0: more than me. I do some, but um, I never really felt like I could advise because I didn't feel like I knew enough. Hmm. Um, I still feel a little bit weird about it. Um, I don't know. You meet a lot of like people that you're like, huh. Eh. I don't know if you have done enough to be able to advise people. And it comes back to that bullshit stuff, right? That's probably just mostly bullshit and they're just trying to take money from you, mm. right? So I want what I look for, something that I can actually have real impact with and I'm not going to just help someone because I want to stroke my own ego or charge a $1,000 an hour, right? I would feel horrible about that. I want to actually... Oh. I advise free of cost because Mm -hmm. if I'm advising, it's to help someone else.
1: I think that's a good place to tie the knot on this. Brayden, thanks so much for coming down. Brayden Hanley is the co-founder of Inkbox. Thanks for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.